Lord, for this moment, it is yours. I ask you would grant to me the proper humility to just speak what you have for us in this moment. Father, thank you for everyone gathered. We're mindful of a, of a need that we have and intensify that need, Lord. Uh, increase in us uh, a, a, an understanding of what it means that you have come in Jesus. We, we are familiar with this, Lord. We have, um, we have an understanding of it, but we pray you will um, re, revamp it all, uh, change whatever needs to change in our understanding that we might more, more rightly understand you and what it means to follow you. So be with us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, I'm just so grateful uh, to, first of all, to be a minister of the gospel. I did not imagine this in my life until sometime after 19 years old as my conversion. I'm just so grateful that I can stand here and have some understanding of Christmas. Uh, as a kid growing up, I was really, really confused. Um, I didn't, you know, the whole idea of Santa, and then there's Jesus, and then there's, you know, Mickey Mouse wearing a Santa hat, and then it starts moving, and it starts morphing into all kinds of confusing things. What a precious and wonderful thing it is for our children here to grow up and to understand the purposes uh, of Jesus. Um, I was uh, reminded of uh, the great theologian Dr. Seuss this week. Um, he was not a theologian, by the way. Uh, but he wrote this book in 1957, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Do you remember that classic? And, and then there's a line in there that says this, and I think Dr. Seuss, this is about as much as he could say. It's kind of kind of cool, I think. Uh, then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Yeah. I guess that's what you can say in our day and age, our culture, our society, kind of. You can hint that there's something else there. And of course, the Grinch, you know, his heart is so tiny and his heart grows and he becomes a giver to the little, the little who children. Is that right? Yeah. So, so it, it, there's something a little bit more. Well, I'll tell you that I can stand here and, uh, uh, you know, explain uh, these things. I was uh, quite, quite confused as a little child as to what, what it was all about. But I sure did enjoy all the cookies and snacks and all that sort of thing, that's for sure. Psalm 24. Really, it's kind of a two-part psalm. Psalm 24 is going to present to us a question. Actually, two questions. Psalm 24 is going to uh, present to you this question. Are you able to stand before a holy God? who's been so remarkably gracious to you? Are you able to stand before a holy God? And then the second question is, do you really understand this God? Essentially the question. And I'm going to drive that through a little bit in the time that I have with Advent and the ministry of Jesus to his disciples. Those two questions, do you understand who you are and do you understand who God is? Psalm 24, verse 1, starts off like so many of the psalms. The earth is the Lord's. It's a, it's a praise. It doesn't start with our emotions. It doesn't start with how we're feeling. It starts with an, an affirmation of what's real. The earth is the Lord's. 
and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Essentially what it's saying there is when God made the world, he expressly developed, designed the world to be a place where man can dwell. The waters are separated. The earth or the ground is separated from the waters. For what purpose? For man to have a place to dwell. And all those, end of verse 1, all those who dwell therein. So it's an opening ascription of praise to God. Everything that we enjoy in this world is as a result of God's gracious provision in the world. Who dwells upon the earth? Man. And this presents an immediate obligation. All that is firm under my feet, all that is stable that I enjoy, all that I have requires of me a response to this God who has given me this firm foundation. So it's, it's, it's setting up a privilege. You have been given privilege to be alive and to reap the benefits of, of a firm ground. You're dwelling on stable ground because he thought of you. And this sort of sets up the psalm. So God has been faithful, really kind of a large, big picture faithfulness of God. Starts off with praise. And then it moves in uh, verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. You see it there in your worship folder if you have your Bible, verse 3. This is an interesting question, different question. Here we go. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. Well, that's, we've moved into a different, different thought here. And who shall stand in his holy place? We move from the privilege of being on land to the privilege of having, and this would be David's experience in this time, the privilege of having God's worship, the tabernacle worship, that tent structure that started in the book of Exodus, was constructed during the travels through the wilderness, that tent structure that David actually got tired of and wanted a real temple, a real physical body, I mean, filled, you know, brick-and-mortar temple. And this tabernacle structure was placed on a, a hill in Jerusalem, and the hill was called Zion. So wherever singing the hymn and you reference Zion, you're like, oh, that's, a, that's where the temple was. Suddenly, the thought is now, who can enter in to, to the holy place and, there's an emphasis here in verse 3, and stand there, persevere there. Not just run in for a moment and run out, but stand there in God's presence. Who can do this? You see, God had done a mini-advent. He had come in his powerful presence and delivered God's people out of Exodus, uh, out of Egypt, the Exodus story. And he had come in his presence and he travels with his people. His presence is with them through the pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. This is Exodus 13. It begins this remarkable idea that God is not just going to deliver them from Egypt, but he's going to stay with them. So now God has designed a 
tabernacle structure, a place where the priests would apply a blood sacrifice and his presence was promised to be among, among God's people. And so there's this mini advent going on in, in David's mind as he thinks about God has come and he is calling Israel to conform to his moral purity. It's a call to um, ethical conformity to God. God has placed his holiness in the midst of Israel, and Israel is called to be holy as for God is holy. Important question. Who has, who has the holiness, the purity? Who has it? And of course, in verse 4, that is required. It says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's the one who can stand in, in God's presence. That's the one. That's, that's, that's the one. You see God's redemption in the Exodus, God's deliverance from Egypt should produce a thankfulness, one of the key words in the book of Deuteronomy, a thankfulness such that the people conform to the God who delivered them. That's what the Ten Commandments really are. The Ten Commandments are essentially, this is who I am. I don't lie. I don't steal. You, among the confusing gods of Egypt, I want you to, to know who I am and who you are to be. That's what the Ten Commandments really are. They're setting a template for what it looks like to grow in holiness. So God says, yeah, here it is, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, come on in. You can, you can stand. You can stand and persevere in the presence of God. You're not a hypocrite. You're not a, a part of the unfaithful generation from the wilderness wanderings. You, anyone who has pure hands, you come on in and, and you, you have a right heart a right heart, you you come on in. Anybody feeling a little uh, uncomfortable? You think this is possible? Can anyone have a pure heart and stand before before God? Do we have that right self perception? That right understanding. Uh, we we have a privilege of accessing God's presence, but does it produce in us a well, I, I certainly don't have, I'm not qualified to be in your presence. I don't have this pure heart. Did Jesus not teach and inform and instruct his disciples in the condition of their heart? He did. In fact, traveling with Jesus was and I don't know how you imagine it, but uh, it was a rigorous experience because the disciples were continually learning about themselves. Peter, of course, uh, boasted of many things. I love, this, I love Peter in the Bible. He's such an honest, and uh, uh, he's got a lot of zeal, and uh, I, I think he's, he's a tremendous. But in the big advent course, that's when Jesus is born to Mary, when he sets up his tabernacle in human flesh. That's John chapter 1. When he dwells among man, he then draws, he then draws people to himself. And of course, he echoes this Psalm 24 because 
we would say that he is actually the pure one. See, he is the one of pure heart and pure intentions. But as he draws his disciples close to him and in his instructions and in his, in his teachings and in his healings and all that he does, he's actually pointing out something of the human heart and the disciples who are close to him feel this, sense it, and experience it. The Pharisees of the days of Jesus were concentrating on the outward of that something on the outside could make one impure, right? Jesus specifically, clearly teaches that it's not what comes out of a person, this is Mark chapter 7, verse 20, not what comes out of a person that defiles him, but it is from within. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, this is Jesus, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, this is Jesus, all these things come from within and defile the person. So think of this, the, the, the tabernacle in flesh and human form, born of Mary, has come to this earth and he instructs he instructs us, he instructs his disciples. The problem is within you. you. You cannot approach the holiness of God with the condition of your heart. Well, of course, Peter here, he, Peter's listening to this. Peter heard these kinds of things. In, in his self-perception, there must have been some discounting of this in his mind. He didn't fully understand these things. The things he says, are they're boastful, they're arrogant, they're... They're, they lack, they have full of pride. Peter, Peter hears these things, and of course he thinks they apply to someone else. Well, let's go fishing in Luke chapter 5. I love this story, Luke 5. Let's go fishing. And Peter's been fishing all night long. You, you remember the story, perhaps. And let's go fishing. These fishermen are tired, 12 hours or more of fishing, and they've caught nothing. Jesus, they go out in the worst time of the day to go fishing. Yeah, let's go. So Peter reluctantly says, okay, guys, let's do it. He's the master. He's, you know, let's do it. Peter, at his very core, autonomous, autonomous disciple, the ultimate contradiction, <laughs> autonomous. So they go fishing, right? Well, this will be a fun experience. I'll get a chance to tell Jesus a few things about fishing, and um, it'll be all right. And so the beauty and goodness of Jesus, the purity wonder of him is manifested and by the way he's the king he's the king of the fish who knew he's the king of the fish and peter has an experience with his kingliness and his beauty and his wonder and here's how it was recorded in luke 5 verse 9 and as they're pulling in more fish than they can handle they signal to their partners in the other boat to come and to help and they came and they filled both the boats with fish so they began to sink but when peter when simon peter saw it he fell down at jesus knees and said what did he say oh you're the master fisherman i should have known he says depart from me for i'm a sinful man and he cries out oh lord 
this is an, a crisis. That's why I've entitled today's message, Just in Time for Chris, Christmas, A Double Crisis. The first crisis is, do you know yourself? Do you know yourself? Where's the boasting in your life? Where's the self-righteousness in your life? Where's the pride? Where's the autonomous something as a Christian? Do you know yourself? Take, take the area of your strength. Take the area of your competency. Take the area of where you find yourself able to live without utter dependence upon God. You can do this. It's right there. That Advent, the coming of Jesus as your merciful Savior is to rescue you from this inward, can I say it, foolishness. Jesus is on a mission. He's on a mission to redeem people by creating a crisis. It's the crisis of self-confidence, the crisis of self-righteousness, the crisis of turning away from all that is autonomous and raises its fist to God. And you can do this as a religious person. You can do this as a disciple. You can follow along. Great healing. Nice teaching. What about fishing? All right, I'll comply. Barely. Peter was going to experience a radical breakdown of his self-understanding. And it is the most remarkable and special gift that anyone could ever receive. And unless a person has this crisis, they will not enter the kingdom. So Psalm 24 presents to us this glorious king who has tabernacled among us in the tabernacle, the tent structure. This has been with us for centuries from the days of the Exodus, he's among us, and we should not be hypocrites. We should be with all our hearts, all our hearts, pure and worshiping and seeking his face. There's the standard. Of course, that is the standard. And of all redeemed people, this should be what happens in us. There should be real change of heart. And the change of heart begins with the personal crisis. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus, you must be able to find a better disciple than me. If you knew my heart, you would not be in this boat with me. That's basically what he's saying. And of course, Jesus in verse 10 of Luke 5 says, don't fear, soon you'll be catching men. The subtext of that is I'm going to completely rebuild you, Peter. You're filled with guilt. Filled, your conscience is burdened. You realize you can't approach a holy God. And Peter, you don't know why I'm here. I'm going to rebuild you. And you're going to, you're going to, your fears are going to be radically, radically reduced. So, Jesus' presence as the final tabernacle should draw forth a, a crisis of heart for us, and we do not see hope in ourselves. When Peter says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, there, there is I don't have any hope of reclaiming my ability to follow you. I'm not a follower of you. What he's essentially saying is, I am abandoning my self-resourcefulness. I don't have it. That's the key to the kingdom. That's the key, I would propose, 
to the critical crisis that Advent proposes to us. It's a very important I am to say I am more desperate for God's mercy than I ever understood. And I would, I would contend that is just in time for Christmas for all of us. Now, let's take a look at verses 7 through 10. It almost is like a different song. It strikes me that way. Lift up your heads, O gates. Well, that's a whole different subject. What is it? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Now, the question, verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. One more time, verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. That's a reference to celestial beings like stars and planets. His armies are the stars. At night, we can look up and you see the stars. What the psalmist here is saying is that this is our king. He is the master of the universe, the king of the universe, and he controls the stars. They are his army. Now, here's what's being proclaimed in this verse. David is essentially functioning like a, like a prophet here. He's, he's imagining a future temple structure. It's maybe city gates, but there's a, there's a gate through which people will pass to, to worship God. But here is a gate that has been made human-like. The gates have heads. Did you see that there in verse 7? The gates have heads. And why should the heads be lifted up? Because the, the and again, it's strange to talk this way, they are like human-like, they're cast down. They don't know who is approaching. They don't know that they should be upright and you in the military at attention. Attention is extending honor. Oh, gates, you... You human-like things, be at attention and now open wide because there is, and now David as a prophet, a great advent is coming. Greater than the mini advent from the Exodus. This is the big Exodus, and this is the final Moses. Great advent is coming now. Open wide because he is coming. He has deigned to be among us. Who? Who's deigned to be among us? The great God, the only true God, is now dwelling among us and entering into the place of worship. <laughs> and David is calling upon the proper response to what that looks like. Uh, we, we love this stuff today, by the way, with some, like, for instance, some of you in, in your football passion, you know about this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw the uh, uh, Auburn, it's Auburn Tigers, is that right? Auburn Tigers? Okay, SEC, I'm not, I'm from Southern Cal, so SEC, I'm not sure about, I don't know, you know, what's going on there. But the Auburn Tigers, I saw their opening when they come in the stadium. If you have not seen this, you need to go to YouTube and see this, because it, it is amazing. 
the entrance of this team, now I'm sure all, all our teams do this kind of stuff, a massive TV replays the highlights from the Auburn Tigers, massive, before the team comes on the field. Then there's the smoke that starts rising out of the, the tunnel that the team is coming out of. Then there's people running on with huge banners, and the crowd is going nuts. There's music being played. The opposing team doesn't have a chance. It's the most, and then the, the band is, 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 is out there, and, and the team runs in between the band, the, the way the, the band's created a lane. The, the music is blasting. It's the most remarkable thing. You see, what, what the people of Auburn and the athletic department and whoever puts that on is saying, our team deserves a grand entrance. You do not understand our team, so we'll help you understand how special they are. Now, David envisions a future arrival of God's presence, and he's a king of glory. And just as there was a question, who can stand in God's presence, a privilege of the covenant, here comes the question to you, to us, in David's day, do you understand the God who has made himself present? 